0: Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, my Haitian pen, Baron de Vatte. Great achievements are often followed by great uncertainty. You come home from your high school or college graduation ceremony from the hospital, where you've just given birth, from running your fastest ever race or climbing your highest ever mountain, and you think, okay, now what? The same rule holds in political life, as we can see from the history of revolutions. Overthrowing the old regime is not the last step, but the first. In the case of the Haitian revolution, the first step was already a giant leap for mankind. Whatever else happened in the aftermath of the country's independence in 1804, at least the population could take pride in staging the world's greatest and most successful slave revolt but much else remained unclear. First of all, there was the matter of the mode of government. Jean-Jacques Dessalines had himself crowned the Emperor of Haiti in October of 1804, taking the title Jacques I. The constitution of 1805 confirmed this establishment of Haiti as an empire and gave Dessalines the power to appoint his own successor. He did not get the chance to use this authority, though. Dessalines was assassinated in 1806, And disagreement over the way forward left the country divided between two rulers, both of whom had fought under Dessalines. Alexandre Pétion, who was of mixed ancestry and born free before the revolution, ruled the southern part as an ostensibly democratic republic, though it wasn't very democratic in practice. By 1816, a new constitution named Pétion president for life, again with the power to select his successor, though as a nod to republican principles, the Senate had the job of confirming this choice. Meanwhile, the north was under the rule of Henri Christophe, brought to Saint-Domingue from Grenada as a slave before the revolution. Christophe believed that a weak presidency was insufficient for the purposes of leadership, and so in 1811 he was crowned the king of a hereditary monarchy. Then there was the other small matter of the rest of the world. France refused to recognize Haiti's independence, and other European powers and the United States followed suit. Under these circumstances, could the country, whether republic or monarchy, manage to retain its autonomy, even as the French schemed to retake it and reimpose colonial control, and possibly slavery? Alongside all these uncertainties were more abstract questions about the meaning of the revolution itself. Of course, apologists for slavery were appalled at the revolution's success. They wrote retrospective justifications of the French policies in Haiti, And argued that the violence of the uprising just showed that slavery was indeed necessary to keep black populations docile. It's a preposterous argument from today's perspective, but at the time it put white abolitionists on the defensive. As early as 1792, the French poet and feminist philosopher Olympe de Gouges criticized Haitians for the excesses of their rebellion, writing, by imitating the tyrants so cruelly you justify them. Men were not made for chains, but you prove that they are necessary. But here's another change brought by the revolution. Now black Haitians could speak from a position of relative power, refuting arguments in favor of slavery and presenting justifications of the revolution itself and the political regimes that grew from it. Among the most important, and most philosophically interesting, of the authors to do so, in the post-revolutionary generation, was Jean-Louis Vatay, who became the Baron de Vatay under the monarchical rule of King Christophe. Given the division of the country between Christophe and Pétion, Vatay actually had a dual political goal, arguing on behalf of Haiti as a whole, and arguing on behalf of his king. While this much is clear from Batte's own writings, his life story keeps us solidly with our theme of uncertainty, because there is much that is disputed about his biography. We do know that his given name was Jean-Louis, and that he had a white father from Normandy and a free black mother. He may have traveled to France as a young man, and should perhaps be identified with a poet who published under the name of Pompey Valentin Vatay. But He was back in Haiti for the revolution, and left the French army to join the forces led by Desaigne in 1803. Later in life, he described his decision in the following terms, I threw myself into the arms of my brothers. I uttered an oath, never to separate my cause from that of my fellow men. In the second decade of the 19th century, we find him at the side of Christophe. Baté was happy to describe himself as the king's publicist. In this capacity, he published a number of treatises, including the first full-length history of the revolution written from the Haitian point of view, and two shorter works which will be occupying our attention in this episode. The first, which appeared in 1814, is entitled The Colonial System Unveiled, and is an unprecedented attack on the slave system and its depredations. The second, published in 1816, and translated into English by British abolitionists only a year later, is his Reflections on Blacks and Whites. Both of these works are refutations aimed at slavery apologists. In Colonial System Unveiled, Vatay is responding to Pierre-Victor Malouet. Even the title is an ironic appropriation of the words of Malouet, who had written, Experience teaches us that the doctrine and principle of liberty and equality transplanted to the Antilles can produce nothing there except devastation, massacres, and conflagrations that principle being the fundamental base of what I call the colonial system, I insist on it as an obvious fact. Similarly, in Reflections on Blacks and Whites, the target is an ex-colonist named Mazer, who had tried to justify slavery by saying that black people are naturally inferior, having a different origin than whites. Against this, Voltaire argues for the unity of the human race, and mounts a complex argument against the charge of black inferiority. Just as Colonial System Unveiled was pathbreaking in its detailed account of the cruelties of colonialism and slavery as an organized system, so Reflections was a pioneering work in the philosophy of race. Batte's brilliance was recognized early on. Abolitionists in Europe and America eagerly touted the works of this learned and rhetorically gifted polemicist. A review of the Reflections called him the Alpha and Omega of Haitian Intellect and Literature, and another was pleasantly surprised by Vatte's degree of learning and classical knowledge, which we could not by any means have expected in a country which Europeans are in the habit of considering as in a very uncivilized state. That quickly produced English version of his reflections begins with a prologue which observes that the writings of Ignatius Sancho and Phyllis Wheatley are alone sufficient to show that neither good sense nor true taste are irreconcilable strangers to the African breast, But it still reserves a special place for Vate. The Reflections, it says, is perhaps the first work by a Negro in which the energies of the mind have been powerfully excited and have found a proper scope for action, and where, in fact, this long oppressed race has been suffered to say a word in their own defense. Modern day readers have likewise recognized Vate as something new in the history of Africana thought, yet at the same time fretted over the political context in which he wrote. Writing in the 1970s, an expert on Haitian literature, David Nichols, described Vaté as the official ideologist and apologist of his king, and more recently, Chris Bongi has spoken of Vaté as a scribe for the Christophe regime. The first of these descriptions, taken without any immediate value judgment, is hard to deny. In a letter to the British abolitionist Thomas Clarkson, whom we mentioned in episode 36, this is how he explains the purpose of his pioneering work of history, entitled Essay on the Causes of Haiti's Revolution and Civil Wars. Exasperated at seeing in the journals of the South, and in those of France, their faithful echoes, the calumnies which the enemies of Haiti and the king endlessly repeat concerning his government and his person, I decided to refute them. Clearly then, defending the king and the government of which he was a part was a primary source of motivation for Vatte to refer to him as a scribe however seriously underplays his originality a point that has been made most forcefully in the best study of Vattel's thought thus far Malene doubts Baron de Vattel and the origins of black atlantic humanism from a contemporary perspective Vattel's sense of dedication to an authoritarian monarchy may seem problematic especially given the existence of a republican alternative to the south at that very time Vattel however devised a series of arguments disputing the idea that the freedom for which the revolutionaries fought would be best maintained in a republic. For one thing, he argued that republican opposition to the system of nobility that made him a baron and others under Christophe's rule into dukes, counts, and chevaliers rested on a misunderstanding of the idea of equality. Equality of rights before the law is, according to Vatay, the only equality that can exist on earth. And he claims that this is both what Haitians fought for during the revolution and what citizens in Christophe's kingdom enjoy. It would be the height of folly to seek to establish equality, the loss of all differences in rank and relative standing. The rich and the poor, the strong and the weak, the brave and the cowardly, the enlightened and the ignorant, can they be equal? Do not the simple deliverances of common sense forbid this imaginary equality in an organized society? At a fundamental philosophical level, then, Latte argued that republicanism is confused. And, as he pointed out, the track record of France's own revolutionary government hardly suggested that republican values and slavery are antithetical. In fact, Haitians more generally had great hopes that the restoration of the monarchy in France after the fall of Napoleon would be followed by normalization of relations between the two nations, though these hopes were dashed. Furthermore, Vate accused Pétion's republican government in southern Haiti of willingness to collaborate with the French, Against the backdrop of these political considerations, Watte dismissed objections to Christophe's monarchy as plain racism, writing, One would say to hear them that a black king is a phenomenon that has never been seen in the world. Of all the prejudices that afflict and dishonor the human species, there is not one that is more odious, more absurd, and more fatal in all its consequences than color prejudice. Who will therefore reign over the blacks if the blacks cannot be kings? Is royalty such a privilege, that it belongs exclusively to the white? For Vate, Christophe, whom he calls one of the best men in the new world, was the benevolent overseer of a safe haven for black people, their sole asylum of liberty. He viewed monarchy, the strongest possible form of centralized power, as one natural result of a struggle for liberation. If this sounds surprising, consider his favorite example, Britain, a country in which free population are subjects of the crown. In fact, Vaté often had nice things to say about the British, since one of his goals was to persuade them to offer recognition to Haiti. The Christophe regime even toyed with the idea of making English the national language of Haiti, in order to make a clean break with the French oppressors and entice the British to adopt a more friendly policy. Vaté also wanted the British to expand their efforts to civilize Africa, already begun in Sierra Leone. On Vaté's telling, Britain and other European powers at this time were defenders of freedom and promoters of enlightened culture, with France the lamentable odd man out. He saw hypocrisy as endemic to the French governing and intellectual classes, about whom he presciently remarked, Posterity will never credit the fact that, in an enlightened century like ours, some men who call themselves scholars and philosophers have endeavored to reduce other men to the condition of brute beast, by denying there is but one original type of the human race, and that they have done so solely for the sake of maintaining the abominable privilege of oppressing one portion of humankind. True philosophers will stand up against tyrants, he says, giving the obvious example of Socrates and the rather dubious example of Seneca. The thesis that humans have more than one origin is, as we've already mentioned, at the heart of his reflections. Voltaire was prompted to write this work in opposition to the ex-colonist Mazer. This work begins by accusing Mazer and his family of cruelty towards their Haitian slaves. His opponent disgraced humanity by his crimes, even before he undertook to justify slavery. For Mazer, the relation between blacks and whites is like that between two different animal species, like asses and horses, or different breeds of dog. Bate's response to this gives us a good introduction to his biting and sarcastic style. Mazer may draw parallels between himself and asses and dogs, I will not prevent him. Besides, since we're interested in skin color, wouldn't a better comparison be black horses and white horses? In fact, of course, Masaea's idea and pseudoscientific arguments that support it are bunk. Instead, now sounding not unlike Socrates in a platonic dialogue, Vauté claims that there is a single prototype of humanity which secures the unity of the whole race. Even if it were true that blacks were fundamentally different from whites, it would still be wrong to say that black skin is a sign of inferiority. Both here, in the Reflections, and in Colonial System Unveiled, Vatay points out that there are plenty of barbaric and uncivilized white people. Why not buy some, he asked the colonists, your markets will be abundantly provided for. Indeed, the French themselves were, in late antiquity, more barbaric than the Africans of Vatay's own time. That's a point typical of Vatay's Reflections, which draws heavily on his reading in History. One of his Trump arguments against African inferiority is that Europeans, specifically the Greeks, were raised to a higher standard of civilization by the Egyptians, who taught them the sciences. He admits that Africa has fallen to a lower level in more recent centuries, something he blames partly on the coming of Islam, but this is just an example of the rise and fall that affects all cultures. Perhaps in the future, he muses, Europe will slump to a lower level, and Africa will wake from her long slumber to emerge as the world's leading civilization. The Reflections includes a striking passage describing the horrors that French colonists inflicted upon their human chattel, burning slaves alive and having them attacked by dogs, those quadruped brethren of the colonists who are a thousand times less savage than the colonists themselves. But this is a mere brief interlude compared to what we find in The Colonial System Unveiled. This somewhat earlier text falls into two parts. The second consisting largely of a catalogue of tortures and cruelties from the history of slavery in Haiti. It is certainly the more memorable part of the treatise, but it's worth noting how the first section prepares the way for the second. Bate puts the Haitian experience in context, by describing the exploitation of the New World more generally. Mostly, he is here drawing on other historians, whom he quotes at length to demonstrate the oppression suffered by indigenous Americans at the hands of colonizers. Though the content of the text is for the most part not original, the idea is. Vatay is proposing that slavery is a kind of continuation, and perhaps even logical conclusion, of the colonial project as a cohesive whole, a coherent system. In a proof of the truism that one crime leads to another, African slaves were imported as a substitute labor force for American Indians. As in his other works, Vatay writes here for a broad readership, seeking to stiffen the resolve of his fellow Haitians and win the support of potentially friendly readers abroad. But Colonial System Unveiled is above all a thunderous accusation aimed at the French colonists whose sadism provoked the well-justified uprising of the Haitian people. Bate explains his motivation as follows. The time has finally arrived when the truth must come to light. I, who am neither a white man nor a colonist, may not possess the same erudition, but I will not be lacking when it comes to citing examples. My Haitian pen will be lacking in eloquence, no doubt, but they will be truthful. I will be heard and understood by the feeling and impartial European, and the brutal colonist will shake and tremble upon seeing his foul deeds brought to light. The false modesty cannot obscure the fury and power of Vate's words, as he launches into an extraordinary litany of the crimes committed on Haitian soil by the colonists. For page after page, he lists the stomach-churning torments endured by the slave population. There are several striking features of this part of the work. For one thing, the guilty slave owners are mentioned by name, and so often are the slave victims. Also, the point seems to be identifying as many perpetrators as possible. In some cases, we get a longer anecdote, but often a given atrocity will be sketched in just one sentence, like Michaud, settler, resident of Anarie. Had blacks of his placed in a bread oven while still alive. Sometimes the culprits are named with hardly any detail concerning their crimes, as when he writes, "Mistress Leroy had them clubbed to death." Mistress Lametier acted likewise. Obviously, the sheer quantity of reports is meant to have an impact by conveying the scale of the horror and also increasing the credibility of Vathe's case. The specific names and the itemization of many specific crimes also indicates that he is, indeed, building a case. It's like an extended charge sheet or indictment of the colonists, a speech for the prosecution submitted to the court of public opinion. But his approach is a new one in anti-slavery literature. Obviously, other texts had offered examples of cruelty against blacks, often within the first-person testimony of a slave narrative. It was such a standard feature of abolitionist texts that Olauda Equiano, excused himself from producing such stories, writing, The punishments of the slaves on every trifling occasion are so frequent and so well-known, together with the different instruments with which they are tortured, that it cannot any longer afford novelty to recite them. But Vaté does not try to present us with a heart-rending narrative, first person or otherwise. Instead, he has gathered evidence from many others and presented it in an ostentatiously factual, almost detached way. His strategy is the precise opposite from that proposed by Ignatius Sancho in his letter to Lawrence Stern. As you may recall, Sancho wanted Stern to use his talents to write a piece of fiction that would appeal to the reader's benevolent hearts. The whole point of Vaté's litany of horror is that it is not fictional. With a tone of seething rage instead of lacrimose pity, he reports events that should induce any fair-minded reader to recoil from the wicked deeds of the colonists. As Vate himself says, This is not a novel I am writing, it is an exposé of the ordeals, the protracted suffering, and unparalleled acts of torture that an ill-fated people have experienced for centuries. Which is not to deny that Vate appeals to his readers' emotions, or sentiment. He says at one point that he is writing for people of sensitivity. This accounts for some other striking features of the text, like his emphasis on the sexual liaisons between masters and slaves, which leads to fathers tormenting and murdering their own children, and on spectacular acts of abuse by jealous wives. One makes her husband shoot the slave she thinks he has been raping. When the slave survives, the wife cuts off her ears with scissors and has the woman branded with a red-hot iron, so disfiguring her that she becomes worthless and impossible to sell on. Actually, Watte seems particularly concerned to convey the sadism of colonist women. He concludes his evidence with a chilling story in which one Mistress Langlois is told that one of her slaves has lost an arm which needed to be cut off to stop her from being pulled into a vat of boiling sugar. Mistress Langlois replies, Gracious me, that wouldn't have been such a disaster when all said and done if it weren't that the body might have spoiled my cane juice. As these examples show, and we could have quoted many, many more, Vaté's colonial system unveiled is unsparing in its descriptions of violence. Yet, because of its tone and mode of presentation, it avoids the voyeurism and sentimentality that was arguably a weakness of earlier and contemporary abolitionist literature. Did this new strategy work? Well, as we've already seen, Vaté himself was held up alongside figures like Sancho and Wheatley as proof of the intellectual potential of black people. And abolitionists did frequently refer to his work, and especially his documentation of colonial cruelty. The ideas of Vate and the revolution more generally had an impact on a European and American readership. Some free blacks were encouraged to consider emigrating to Haiti in order to escape the endemic racism of American society. This is something we'll be discussing in upcoming episodes. Officially, though, Christoph's government was not in the business of fomenting slave revolt abroad. Speaking on his king's behalf, Vaté said, We are not revolutionaries. No one is more devoted than we are to the stability of empires. Nevertheless, if the Haitian regime was unwilling or unable to turn its fire physically on neighboring slave states, Vaté's fiery writing in the colonial system unveiled clearly served the cause of abolition. The result was, as Doris Garraway has put it, a radicalization of the contemporary anti-slavery tract and a transformation of the slave narrative Into a form of public diplomacy defending the agency of an abolitionist state. We quote this not only because it is an admirable description of Vate's colonial system unveiled, but also because it gives us an unimprovable segue to the next episode, which will feature none other than Doris Garraway herself. She'll be our guest as she helps us continue to unveil the story of the Haitian Revolution and its legacy here on The History of Africana Philosophy. had hard trials.